Winston Churchill once said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, but perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. Most people know the first part, but the second part of that quote is just as interesting. Russia does what's best for itself, or better yet, what's best for the people that control Russia. And Vladimir Putin is the man holding all the keys right now. Over the last 17 years, he has brought his influence over every aspect of society, from the media to industry to the government. But amazingly, there was one place that his greedy, no doubt well-manicured fingers hadn't touched, the internet. From 1999 all the way up to 2012, it was the last place that the dream of democracy and liberalization born in 90s Russia could moonwalk out from behind the Iron Curtain, do a 360 spin, grab its crotch, and scream, fuck you authoritarianism, freedom! Unfortunately, today the dream is being smothered by a big fat pillow with Putin's face on it. The last four years, the Russian state and security services have systematically brought the Russian internet to its knees. An independent investigative journalist, Andrei Soldadov, has been courageously reporting it all. His excellent book, The Red Web, and website Agentura.ru, have been one of the few voices cutting through the government bullshit and telling the world what's really going on in modern Russia. I have so much material from my talk with Andre that I decided to break it down into two parts. So here is part one of my talk with Andrei Soldadov. The first thing is, after reading your book, we're obviously being recorded right now. We laugh, but seriously, we really are. There's no doubt about it in my mind after everything that you've investigated. And how are you not in prison or on the run or in hiding? How are you still out in the open doing what you got to do? Uh, well, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> is uh, it everything? Uh, no, actually, the, the thing is that the system we have uh, to deal with people like, like us uh, is uh, sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a very complicated and sophisticated combination of uh, tricks and methods. So sometimes we try to, to put you under, under, under some pressure. Sometimes it might be really, really straightforward. Like may I summon you uh, for interrogation and you might end up in, in Lefortovo, which is uh, a very famous prison. Uh, so you don't know what might happen next. And uh, sometimes uh, they might deal not with you directly, but with your editors and owners of your newspaper. And it's, um, to be frank, it's even much more, well, effective in a way. So it's, it's really they quite smart. And uh, that's why, say, on the one hand, you might ask these questions about the prison, but at the same time, I tell you that, well, the thing is that the last time, I was able to be a full-staff reporter for the Russian publication was in 2009. Wow. So you've just been independent ever since, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's not because I want to be completely independent uh, because it's tough. But the problem is that now if we have something to say, I mean, sensitive in terms of investigation. So you need to first get your stuff published in the West. Only after that, you might hope that maybe someone might repub well, republish or translate some, some, something and publish it in, in Russian. That's why all our books were published first in English. That's so sad. You could get probably published easier in something like The Guardian than right. you could a popular Russian newspaper in Moscow. That's right. It's very sad because uh, you have this feeling that you are losing contact with your, with your audience. So you think of yourself that you are still a Russian journalist, but actually it's, um, 
Well, you have some problems <laughs> because you, you <laughs> yeah. are losing your contact with uh, with, with the ground, with, with people. Uh, you don't know what they actually think about what you do. But it's not for fault of your own. I mean, it's because of the system that is now in place there. I mean, Reporters Without Borders just wrote, I think Russia is 152 out of 180 countries now. I mean, it's abysmal. That's fine. That's, fine. that's very <laughs> sad, but it's really, really, it's, it rings a bell. So it's, uh, it's true. Yeah. And it's one thing for us to, you know, say 152 out of, it's just a number for us. But when you're actually living there, the weight of that number, this is probably the worst period to be a journalist since the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. This Soviet mentality, I think there's a whole generation out there that has kind of lost track and can't comprehend the level of paranoia and secrecy that the communist regime placed on the population for seven decades. Seeking information in, during that time period for an ordinary person was dangerous. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was funny when you mentioned that the Soviets, they invented the photocopier in the 40s or the late 40s or the early 50s. And then a few years after that, they completely destroyed it because they were so scared that now, oh my God, people can actually copy and distribute information. The photocopier was seen as a weapon in the Soviet Union. That's just crazy. But that's the type of system that the majority of the Russian people grow up in. And do you think that's kind of why the Russian people they're just used to this type of oppression, and that's why Putin's popularity remains so high? Yes, in a way, because information, as you said, uh, we have a strange idea that information is a sort of weapon, in, especially in the Soviet Union. And uh, there was a famous quote by Lenin that actually media is not about information, it's about propaganda and mobilization. And the thing is, uh, Lenin said these things about communist media, but he believed that the same idea uh, is well applied to capitalistic or Western media. So they think, and they still believe in it, that media are, are actually are weapons, uh, which might be used by, say, I don't know, from the State Department to CIA to mobilize people and to send people to streets. So it's better to control these things. And when we got the internet, Immediately, people believed, and especially in the security services, they got extremely suspicious. They felt that, first of all, it's an an American invention with some connections to the military industrial complex, which means for them immediately that it's something invented specifically to target the Soviet Union or Russia. And it started actually, well, even before Putin. It started in 1998, 1997. Uh, I was a very young journalist in 1996, and I was invited to a public hearing at the very first public debate about the Internet to the Russian parliament, to the Russian State Duma. And there was a guy who was deputy director of, uh, of the FAPSE, uh, which stands for Russian Electronic Intelligence. And he was invited to give his, his thoughts about the Internet. Uh, but he was really, really blunt. He said one thing. We believe that the internet poses a threat to the national security of Russia. End. End of period. And that was so, well, it struck me. And this was was in 1998. 1996. 1996. So it was long before Putin. It was just in the in the mid of all these reforms we, we had with uh, with Boris Yeltsin, etc. These people inside of the security services they already believed that the internet posed a very big threat to them. There was already this paranoia over the internet before Vladimir Putin was even in power. But what's going to amaze people is that 
the internet freedoms in Russia remained largely unregulated by the Kremlin for 13 years, going all the way until 2012, the fat lady never sang on freedom <laughs> in, in regards to the internet. He kept a very liberal mind with it. And there was a meeting in December of 1999 where Putin, right before he became president, called all the industry leaders together to meet with him. And, and what happened during that meeting? Well, as far as we understand from all talks we had with, uh, with participants of the meeting, the idea was, first of all, is to uh, discuss uh, the proposal made by some officials to expand the government regulations. Uh, they wanted to control domain names. And the second task was to show Putin as a really liberal-minded guy. And Putin, actually, he, he, he said... Uh, that, yes, I think that this idea looks quite strange and maybe we need to, to have some public debate about this kind of thing. And, uh, well, these new guys from the internet industry immediately supported Putin because they believe that this guy would be convenient. He's good for business. Right, absolutely. Putin is good for business. <laughs> it's crazy. Some Russian blogger, he mentioned it and he said that this was all for show. Right. Putin knew that he was going to kill this bill that was going to, like the authorities were going to take domain names out of the private sector and make it a government entity. So if you wanted to get a domain name and you were living in Russia, you would have to go through the government. Basically, that means that they would control the internet. You couldn't get an internet site without the government's help. And Putin killed that idea. And the internet industry was like, yes, this is one of our guys. And he built some kind of trust. That's tradecraft. That's KGB-like. Yeah, maybe not understood at, at this meeting. What Putin also saw, he saw not only support provided by these, uh, these new guys, but also the thing that all these people in the room were in some way dependent on the government money. And I think these ideas struck him. But you have the new industry. All these people informally dressed, bandanas, etc., not really shaved, etc. But at the same time, these people, they, li they lived on and they were paid by the government in one way or, or, or the other. And I think he immediately grasped this opportunity that these people, first of all, they are loyal to me. But also, if I would need to control them, I have some means to control them. So basically, in an essence, he was feeling them out to see how how hard he could push them. Right. Also, at the same time, he did need the West to invest in Russia. The best way to do that would to make it seem like he was open to internet freedom. Right. And also, he did actually believe then that television actually was everything. Uh, the Soviet television was everything. If you need to understand what's going on, say, what might be the, uh, the Russian policy, Soviet policy, in terms of anything, from culture to foreign policy, you just need to watch carefully Soviet television and you would be given some sort of directions. I mean, as soon as he got in, I think it was like six months after he was inaugurated, he already started to put the television and the newspapers into his pocket. So maybe he kind of, in a sense, underestimated the internet. I mean, at the time, there was only 2 million users in Russia and dial-up was really expensive. So it was basically for a certain class of people, an affluent person that was on the internet. But still, the internet came a long way from say 1999 all the way up to 2005. He did nothing all the way up to 2012. So there was a certain period of time where he realized that, oh, people are on Google, they're on Facebook, and he still did nothing up until 
of course, the the protests in 2011 against his third term running for president, which I want to talk about in a minute. But before I go there, you bring up this really interesting story in the book. In 1998, this girl named Vika Egora, who was a 24-year-old editor for some obscure magazine no one's even heard about before, she somehow develops contacts in the world of cryptology. And cryptology is the science of making and breaking code. And she's working on a story about like credit card machines or something like that. And then she reached out to a contact in regards to these credit card machines who agreed to give her some information. But instead of giving her information about credit card machines, this guy gave her a huge leak. Yeah, it was a draft. Uh, the idea was the idea of this draft was to introduce a national system of surveillance uh, on the internet, and it was very very straightforward. The idea was was that every Russian internet service provider should uh, actually buy special equipment, which is actually backdoor for the Russian security services. And it was a little black box, and it was called SORM. Right, which stands for System of Operative Research Measures. And you started this quest of looking at the origins of this black box that goes as far back to Soviet times. But this little black box and DPI, which is Deep Packet Inspection, are the two ways that the Russian state is now controlling the internet in Russia. Absolutely. Actually, just, just today we got the news that uh, the Russian government is working on the new well, restriction. And the idea is to completely ban trans-border connections for providers which have no Russian uh, uh, license for communication and uh, communications and the reasons for that was that these companies uh, they have no no license it means that they have no black boxes so you see it's uh, we, we see these things every day every day we, we try to update the system and to make it more sophisticated and more totalitarian because we just want to control all kind of traffic they're so smart. They pass it in the Doma. I mean, it's all probably from Vladimir Putin and, and, and the people in power, but they make it look legal. Absolutely. They pass this blogger act, which if you have over 3,000 members in your blog, you have to register with the government. I mean, that's just fucking absurd coming from the West. So pretty much for the next 13 years, there's no internet regulation whatsoever. There were attempts by Russian lawmakers to try and regulate the cables, the comments, the, the content. All the bills that these ministers in Russia and the Duma tried to pass, Putin basically killed them. And as a result, the internet developed into Russia's only competitive market. And then the protests in late 2011 happened. There's a law in Russia that says that you cannot run for more than two terms. Putin, he goes for the third term, and 100,000 people march through the streets in Moscow, and the thing was organized on Facebook. And that frightened them, really, really. That was a really big thing for them. So we are talking about a very special kind of mentality. We're still talking about security services mentality. And these people, they always believe that nothing could happen without some sort of support from the West. They really believe in it. I believe that all kind of protests are organized thanks to financial, logistical, some sort of psychological maybe support from the West. They believe that there is some sort of chasing game between the Kremlin and the State Department. And they always try to detect the new trick developed by the State Department. And when the Moscow protests, they immediately believed that now we see the new trick just invented by the State Department. And this trick 
it's hard to get people to the streets without our trade unions, traditional means to mobilize people. When we saw this thing, we immediately believed that, look, we are in a very desperate situation, which actually was not true. We are talking about only 100,000 people marching on Moscow streets, but given the population of Moscow, which is about 12 to 14 millions, what does it mean? It doesn't mean actually Egyptian revolution. It's very far from it. But these people, I mean, in the Kremlin, they already got frightened because they believed that it's all some sort of uh, Western plot enforced by new technologies, and they don't know the limits for this technology. They were just so scared because, like, oh, my God, if 100,000 people could just mobilize right under our nose, what else could they do? Absolutely. After the whole Snowden revelations, I wouldn't put it past the State Department to try and do that. <laughs> you know. But, I mean, knowing what how Putin was, and, you know, he was a KGB officer in East Germany, and and where it comes from, the Soviet system and the paranoia involved. I mean, for Pete's sakes, they destroyed the photocopier because they were scared it was a weapon. So Facebook to them at that point, they must have been like, wow, like this is very scary. So in July 28th, 2012, they passed the single register bill. And that's signed. Yeah. And, and regions of Russia had already started blocking sites on their own. But this was a nationalized systemic kicking the balls to internet freedom. What did this bill actually do and how has it changed everything? Uh, you're absolutely right. In 2007, we got some first blocking of some websites, but these sites were blocked only in some regions. Now it's completely changed. Now if something blocked, it's blocked everywhere. But the second unexpected consequence was uh, the reaction of uh, internet companies. That was absolutely unexpected. The forces were so frightened that they, they introduced a very strange bill. Suddenly, like out of nowhere, after 13 years, yeah. now they want to regulate the internet. Right. And that's why technically it looked really strange. They actually they wanted to block websites on IP address, on actually on everything, which means you might block not only this particular website, but thousands of websites which... That link to that IP, right. So companies, they're so frightened, especially companies like Google or Yandex, because immediately they understood, look, if they, these people, for example, they decide to block one particular video on YouTube, they might end up very quickly blocking YouTube completely. And that provoked them, actually, and to rush to the Kremlin. So the Kremlin... Quite suddenly, they found themselves in a situation when they were approached by biggest companies in the world, very kindly advising them, look, people, you do not know how to do filtering. We do. So maybe we can provide you with some technical solution. And these people in the Kremlin just went, wow, we can frighten them to death. And what we might get? We might get that we might shift the costs for developing a technical solution and the cost for actually implementing these technical solutions to the companies. Right. It's a win-win. Absolutely. It's a win-win. And they got this thing immediately by September, no, I think by October of 2012, it was already well, quite clear that they established a very close and very good relationship with uh, well, the biggest and the most important companies uh, operating in Russia. Putin and the, the Kremlin, they smelled the weakness and then they pounced on it. And then what happened in June 10th, 2014, Putin summons the internet leaders to a meeting again, like he did 14 years before. But this one was very different. He basically continues to bitch slap the entire industry. Yeah. And then at the end of the meeting, 
He threw he added insult to injury by basically coercing the heads of these internet companies to buy startups from some of his cronies. There's a very thin line in Moscow between governing and making money. <laughs> the FSB, who are basically, you know, the Russian equivalent of the CIA, they moonlight on the side for oligarchs and people and using their F- their FSB credentials. In Russia, that's normal. Uh, yeah, it's acceptable, I, I would say. You have, ostensibly, you have lots of people from security services stationed inside of government and non-government companies, and you have an impression that you have everything under your control. But at the same time, you have lots of people who are actually just help businesses really difficult to understand where the loyalty of these people actually stand. That's like saying a CIA officer starts helping out like Robert Murdoch from Fox News. <laughs> Literally, Robert Murdoch gets pissed at a CNN report, so he hires an active real CIA agent to go after and coerce a CNN reporter into not reporting a story about his divorce, say. That's, that, that's <laughs> what it's like in Russia today. In America, there is just such a from what I know of. I mean, listen, there's probably stuff that we don't know about, you know? <laughs> and then you bring up a good point with that. And in, in also in the book, in universities where engineers learn how to make things in Russia, they don't have to take social science courses. They don't have to take ethics. They don't have to take humanities. And in the States, it's required in the universities to take these sort of things. So in a sense, when you have these individuals, you know, these FSB officers, these people who have gone to Russian universities and they've gone on to sciences, they don't learn the morality of things. It was such a difficult question for me personally, because for many years I have been trying to find an answer. Why? Why all these engineers, all these bright young people who can speak English, who are trained sometimes in the West, who know everything about Western technologies, I mean, telecommunication technologies and all kinds of technologies, internet technologies, they are so... Ignorant. Yes, ignorant, and also inclined to work and to collaborate with, uh, say, security services in Russia. And I thought, look, it's not out of fear. It's something about mentality. It's something deeper. And uh, we tried to trace these things and um, back to the Soviet times. It was something about psychology. It was not only about fear, but it was also about how to make people complicit. And the way to make people complicit, especially technical intelligence, engineers, was to, to send them to work in the institutions and research facilities uh, which had something to do with uh, security research or military research. And that, that made these engineers, all of them, they understood the idea of secrecy. Everybody understood that in, in, in Russia. That was the point. And this feeling that you always understand the rules, that there are some things you, you cannot talk about, that you cannot say, talk openly about what you are working on. It was such a widespread feeling. The problem for Putin was just how to resurrect this feeling, how to reinvent it. And he made it very quickly by, say, by the early or maybe the mid of 2000s. And now, if you go to the biggest Russian technical universities, you might immediately grasp this feeling. There's like 1.3 million IT professionals in Russia. These, yeah. these people are on the internet. They have to know and they have to see certain things. It, it would be beyond me that there's only 100,000 people marching in 2012. But again, it goes back to that Soviet mentality, that fealty. 
you know, don't talk, don't say anything, you know, conversations are recorded. It, it's almost like the 90s, or that one brief period of liberal mindedness just never existed. It's actually, it's a very big question to everybody. It's, uh, it's a big question for all people start, well, in their 40s and 50s already. And it's a big question, for example, for my parents, for my relatives, why they were so, well, quiet during the Soviet times. And nobody wanted to actually to answer this question. It's, it's, it's make you feel uneasy. That's why it's so different, say, from, 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 from Central and, and Eastern Europe. Because, say, in Poland, you always might say, look, yes, it was terrible, it was awful, but it was all done by foreigners. You can blame it on someone else. Exactly. The problem is that you have nobody uh, to blame here in Russia. You should blame yourself. What Putin said and what Putin did, he actually he relieved these people of this feeling of uh, something was wrong with them. He immediately he said, look, you, you're absolutely fine. You, you, you did nothing wrong. The Soviet Union was, was a great country. And the thing is, getting back to this point about engineers, that's an important point because actually lots of Russians, and, and we are talking not only about technical intelligence, but mostly about them, they really believe that there was a big struggling uh, and fighting between two systems, but these two systems are absolutely equal in terms of uh, morality and ethics. They believe in it. For example, if you now start a conversation with an engineer in Moscow uh, about, say, surveillance, you might immediately get something like, look, well, why are we talking about the FSB? CIA, NSA, they do exactly the same. So why to try to blame our country? Which means, look, you just need to go and, and make some money. Why to bother about these political things? I just make DPI software. I don't know if the Russian state is using it to spy on its population and my mom. I don't know. It's not my fault. Yeah. And I think we'll stop right there. Jimsveld is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Sprecher, and Stitcher. If you like this, please share it with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. And also subscribe and comment on iTunes. For Jim from Jim's World, I really greatly appreciate you guys listening. Thanks again. Peace.